Good morning, Davenport, Iowa. How you guys doing today? My name is Leonard Jones, and let me welcome you to the second episode of the Black Conscience Podcast. I hope you guys are staying safe and healthy during these unruly times, of course. To give you a little synopsis, the Black Conscience is a 30-minute podcast that features a discussion between me and an expert on a certain topic pertaining to black history or culture. This week, we'll be discussing African-American women in America, and today I have with me Latrice Lacey from who is the Davenport Civil Rights Commissioner. During these talks, I will be asking the expert boundary-pushing questions in order to reach a new level of understanding through conversation. The purpose of this podcast is to educate the St. Ambrose community on African-American history and bring light to the many tragedies African-Americans still deal with every day to the, due to the oppression system set up against us. This is in hopes of developing a conscious way of thinking while also informing the community on a tremendous amount of untold history. This is the opportunity for us to move forward through education, conversation, and communication. But enough of me talking. Now I have our guests introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Latrice Lacey. I am the director of the Davenport Civil Rights Commission. I'm an attorney. Uh, prior to uh, coming to the Civil Rights Commission, I was an attorney with the ACLU and a lobbyist. So, and prior to that, I was working at a black history museum. So I think maybe I might have a a wide wide range of experience on the topic that we're gonna talk about. Great, I really appreciate you coming today. So to get right into it, um, my first question to you would be, what is your personal opinion about the way African-American women are treated in this country today? I I think, we have a continuation of kind of yesteryear's uh, mistreatment. So we have an intersection of uh, both racism and sexism. uh, And those that's kind of like a dual oppression that black women um, have to deal with. Uh, uh, Black women are also routinely stereotyped uh, and hypersexualized. So it's a, it's, it's kind of a huge intersection of um, oppressions when we uh, talk about black women and, and how they are depicted and how they are treated. So I'll ask you, do you believe African-American women are subjected to different standards than other people in our, in our society today? So you kind of spoke on it a little briefly. So and if so, why do you believe that is? I, I think so. Um, I think uh, black women are not allowed to... Uh, have full humanity. I, black women are not allowed to express emotion. Um, they're not allowed to uh, mess up. I'll I'll say that uh, I, I'm telling on myself here, but <laughs> I, I like the Real Housewives fr- uh, franchise. And I was watching Real Housewives of Potomac uh, last week, and there was a physical altercation. And all and this is a predominantly black cast. I think they might be all black, but they. Um, they were discussing amongst themselves, we as black women, you know, this is going to be a terrible representation of us on television. This is going to look bad. This is going to impact black women. One of the uh, people on the show, she's a correspondent with uh, like CNN and those, and she was like, I fight so hard to push back against this stereotype that black women are angry. And, and I just thought white women don't have to do that in society. They don't have to temper their behavior for fears that it's going to impact the entire, that entire segment of our society. But black women effectively have the weight 
of the entire black female world on their shoulders uh, and that they always have to be a positive exemplar or else they fear that this is going to have an impact on every other black woman uh, in our society. So I ask you, um, what do you believe we can do today to help address this issue? Um, I think on a, in a country that was kind of built on stolen land from Native Americans and, and built up by uh, stolen labor and people and uh, future from Africa, I, I, maybe the first step is to just stop being racist. <laughs> you know, I think that would be the first thing. Um, but uh, we've had a really rocky start. Uh, so uh, going back to what you said about how black women are held up on um, such higher standards, do you believe that plays into like um, the way black people look at black excellence that we got to do things a certain way in order to, unless we got to do things a certain way, if not, then it's going to be picked at and picked apart no matter what? Yeah, I think so. I think people feel like we're being watched because th- there's a limit of how many black people can be can be in the room at the table. Yeah. So as the as the sole black person, you have to be really good if you want to be there at the table because you represent everyone. And I think that that is a an idea that is kind of rooted in racism and white supremacy. It's it's rooted in this thought that you have to be good in order to sit there, but everyone else can be mediocre. And there's no conversation about the flip side of you having to be extra good. Uh, everybody else can just be. And you have to be awesome in order to be there. And I think that that, I think that goes into like this black woman being like a superhero kind of mm-hmm. um, narrative that we have and that black women are supposed to save the world and they're supposed to be the workhorse, but they're also supposed to be quiet. And we don't talk about that dichotomy there. So I'll ask you, do you believe that paternalism or male privilege plays a role in the way African-American women are treated in today's society. And this is from daily interaction to the creation of policies and the determination of wages. I, I think we live in a society that um, problematizes vulnerable bodies. And I think black women are especially vulnerable because of that intersection of oppression. And um, that is, it's rooted in paternalism, it's rooted in racism. Um, but it also is rooted in like that lack of power. So we, we, black women have been um, leading families. They've been in the workforce. They have been uh, fighting for their rights and the rights of other people in their community. They are fighting for their children to have access to education. They are trying to defend uh, their families and children from racism. Um, that they're experiencing the trauma that they experience on a daily basis, and they are expected to do it all. And we don't talk about how um, systems of power have been built specifically to kind of dismantle black humanity. Um, And coming from a time where black men could not even get a job and if you could it was not enough to support a family so their wives had to work uh whereas the same was not true for white families um we we still see a continuation of that today we see that statistically uh you know there's so many families led by uh single moms or uh you know uh or or a female head of household i should say and and we see that that is a continuation of yesteryear's oppression um, 
And I think now it's exacerbated by the war on drugs and mass incarceration yeah. and those things, but it, it, it ties back to racism. So I'll ask you, what is your daily life interaction being a black woman and living and working in white America? Um, it, it's, it's, um, I, I would say, uh, it's discriminatory. It's isolating. Um, obviously I'm the only black department head for the city. I'm the only black employee really at city hall. Um, so it, it's isolating. I think people don't factor in how um, uncomfortable it is to be the only person that looks like you in an entire building. Um, and it's, you should be grateful for being here versus... Um, you have the right to be here. You, you have a right spot. to be here. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're uh, a, an equal person and you have a right to be here. And also, perhaps we should do better to learn um, versus expecting you to teach us and um, expecting you to conform to our standards. We, we, I, I've noticed a huge thing in, in Iowa is that there is an expectation that people should not, there should not be a diversity of culture. There should not be a diversity of background. Everyone should conform to these standards of mm. white culture. And the way that I would do things is the proper way to do it. And whatever anyone else thinks, that's wrong. And that doesn't factor in like people's backgrounds, their upbringing, and just a different, just individuals, you know, <laughs> people, people behave differently, but certain things are, are directly tied to culture. And there is no consideration of that. It's just like, well, that's wrong. Cause that's not the way that I would do it. Um, so that's, uh, that's a thing, um, so, living and working in, in this society. So would you say that it comes down to, um, needing more acceptance in the area? If that makes sense? Um, I, I think, and I, I'm always hesitant to frame it in that way because mm -hmm. people know how they want to be treated. So yeah. you can figure out how you want to be treated, but you can't figure out how to treat other people. I mean, that's... <laughs> and and that's the main thing, like, um, thy knows how to treat thy neighbor, thy knows how to treat thy son, or so how is it so hard for you to be able to treat um, an African-American person in the same way? Right. Yeah, um, there, but there's this notion that's like, well, they want to be treated special. It's like, no, we just <laughs> we we don't want to be mistreated. We want to be treated like we are equal. That that's it. Nobody's asking for anything, for you to go above and beyond anything. Just don't mistreat us. But their their mistreatment is uh, it's all over the place. But they'll go. So I'll change the subject a little bit. Um, I ask you, who are some African-American women locally and internationally that have personally influenced you? Um, I would say locally, I obviously I grew up in Chicago, so I had a uh, mentor there. She founded the DuSable Museum on the south side of Chicago, wow. um, Dr. Margaret Burroughs, and she was, she was just an awesome lady. She, um... She actually passed my first year of law school, so right after I moved here, she passed. Um, but she taught me a lot about the black community mm -hmm. um, and the way that they helped each other. Um, things that I, I guess I thought were beyond my lifetime. I didn't realize that um, everyone was so interconnected. Like we read about 
um, yes. the Harlem Renaissance and Langston Hughes and all of these folks. And it's like, and then I can look through her picture albums at her home and like, there they are at her house. And she talked about like um, her friendship with all of these like famous black artists. And I'm like, how in the heck did you know these people? <laughs> And she's like, well, we all we had to know each other because if we wanted to go somewhere and show our art, we had to go and stay at someone's house because we didn't know what we were going to do when we got to whatever town it was, um, because we might not have there might not have been a hotel. There might not have been a place to eat. There might you know, you just could have been in a dangerous situation. And so we had to know each other and they had to stick together and they all kind of interacted and and had this network of people. And it was like, I think. In my thinking, at that time, it didn't seem like they had the um, technolo technological advancements to be able to communicate the way that they were, kind of going back and forth across the country. And I but just they still found a way. They found a way. And that's the community they don't want. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. So, um, I ask the next question. So, do you think that? Our society's mistreatment of black women has become more noticeable as we continue to update our lenses, or some would say perception, or do you believe that in most aspects the intersectional problems of black women have not been fully identified? I, th I think it goes back to people know what, people know how they want to be treated. So it's not a matter of not knowing, it's a matter of not caring. Um, if you understand that you don't want to be silenced and you don't want to be cast aside and you don't want your concerns to be ignored, why is it that you feel as though black women uh, can have their concerns sidelined? And I look at that kind of across the spectrum in our society. It's we view um, the consideration of black women's opinions as an afterthought, but we do expect them to do the footwork on in most areas of kind of social justice work and mm -hmm. and and as action. Um, I, I think that w one experience that I had when I um, when I was at the museum, we had a, a traveling exhibit about the women in the civil rights movement. And um, one of the people that came was Dr. Dorothy Height, and she is always kind of the little tiny lady in the photos with Dr. King and, and the folks. And, and we never learned about her in school. We never talked about her. And she was doing she, she was doing a presentation for the kids, and one of the kids asked, you know, how come we don't learn about, you know, you? And she was like, well, we weren't, the women weren't out front. At that time in our society, you let men speak. Yeah. And so women were behind the scenes doing all of the work and men were out front doing the talking. And they were really the powerhouse though, moving the shit. Yeah. When we think about like the Montgomery bus boycott, the women were the ones organizing. They were basically creating bus routes and figuring out who went where, who worked where, cooking all of the food so that people had lunches so that they didn't need to go anywhere in between so that every, they, they figured out all of the logistics. And the, the skill that that took, you know, and it's like, we we don't even acknowledge that they existed or that they played a part in that. Yeah. Um, but without their work, that would not have been successful. It's like, we're fine with black women being in the background and doing the work and making things happen while someone else gets to be the face and take credit for it. And that has worked out. <laughs> not really, but it's worked yeah. out. And, and so, and there is a, um, 
there's a desire to have a continuation of that, I think. I, th I think people would prefer if people would just go somewhere and sit down and be quiet and do the work um, without any consideration of how, of how the outcome affects people um, and, and without them having any sort of agency in deciding what happens next. Yeah. Wow. So you kind of um, briefly touched on it a little bit. So I'll ask you. Who are some important African-American female figures that you've that have been wiped away from most history books that you believe stories should be told? So you kind of mentioned one of them. Um, I think Ruby McCollum. Um, she was a, an interesting figure. Um, and I think that she showed us that um, black women don't have access to justice uh, in our judicial system. She was a... Uh, the wealthiest black woman in this town and um, her and her husband ran like a kind of sounded like an illegal gambling business mm -hmm. but they um, there was a local doctor who participated in the games and and they got mixed up and it's it the story is unclear but it sounds like he was maybe giving her heroin and got her addicted to drugs and he was sexually assaulting her and she mm -hmm. had had two children by him I think and he she he had given her a bill she went to his office to pay the bill he then told her no you have to pay more so she paid the additional and then he said no i'm not going to take this and he tried to rape her and so they struggled she got he tried to rape her at gunpoint she got a hold of his gun she shot him and she killed him um the she got charged with murder obviously um the judge at the trial uh was one of the doctor's pallbearers uh and the the judge ordered a, 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 a basically a gag order and she was not allowed to talk about her trial uh, before or, or after the trial. She wasn't allowed to talk to the media. And uh, this drew the attention of Zora Neale Hurston. So she went down to try to, uh, you know, watch the trial and see what was happening. And then eventually she got blocked because black woman. And so she found a white male journalist to go down and try to talk to her and get information. And he wasn't allowed to meet with her. He ended up having to to sue to get to talk to her. He was in. He ended up being jailed, um, and all of this was to silence um, Ruby McCollum's voice. It was to silence the truth from coming out about what was going on and how um, society was working at that time. So, despite Ruby McCollum being a really wealthy woman, she her her socioeconomic status was not able to shield her from the racism and sexism in our judicial system, in our society. Um, and it was a really, um, I thought it was a really powerful story because it, it showed how things happen and we see a media, we see something presented in the media, but we don't know what happened behind <laughs> the scenes because the people who are in control of the narrative getting out there are also the people who are engaging in the misbehavior. And so it's like, well, how do you, I mean, it was a, it was a, a very interesting uh, story that depicted kind of the intersection of these ills of our society. Um, I think um, Willie Anna Burroughs, who was Dr. Burroughs' mother-in-law, she was a super interesting lady. She was uh, involved in the communist party. She was a, a teacher. Um, and she was, I think she was the first black woman to run for office in New York. And she ended up having to defect to the Soviet Union because she was um, 
being swept up in the McCarthyism. But she was she had a really interesting story, and uh, Dr. Burroughs talked about her uh, kind of piecemeal, but she didn't really talk about like who she was. And I was I was reading something online a couple of weeks ago, and I stumbled across, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's <laughs> you know that's her her husband's uh, mother. Like that's so interesting. Like she was really involved with a lot with like the Ida, Ida B. Wells campaign and and wow. getting information out about lynching and kind of getting black people interconnected and learning how to get involved in the political system, uh, getting people to be more active, learning more about socialism, learning how to combat like the, the some of the ills that come along with capitalism and, and greed. And, and she's just been kind of wiped from, from the history books. This is the first time I've ever heard about her. She's a super interesting lady. I thought her, um, Dr. Burroughs was like, um, she, she had like a ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so she would just, she would just be like, Oh, Latrice, can you look through this? And then I, I would, I have ADHD, so this was like right up my alley to just like sit and peel through things. But this is knowledge. Yeah. It's just straight information. And so I would like just be looking through stuff, and and I thought the so her husband grew up in the Soviet Union. He didn't end up coming back to America until he was drafted for I think he was drafted in World War Two, and so he ended up having to come back to serve. But he. <laughs> He grew up there and he became a clown. And I was like, what <laughs> in the world? Like, a clown? A clown. I was like, how? What, uh, what in the world? Like, it was just the weirdest story. It was, it was actual like, occupation. Yeah, like she, <laughs> she took her kids there because she felt like they were going to be so mistreated in America. So she took them there so that they would have greater opportunities. And, and then he, he became, became a clown. clown. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. That's the one thing I didn't expect <laughs> from that story. I, I will think, say. I think Fanny Lou Hamer is another one. She's from um, my hometown in, in Mississippi, and she um, she has a super interesting story, and we don't talk about it. Like what we know about Fanny Lou Hamer is, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I ask you a question, and this person a question of, so why? What part of Mississippi are you from? From Sunflower County. So Fanny Lou May, she passed away in. Um, Mount Bayou, Mississippi, which is um, where my family is from. Oh, is my, it? My father and his whole, he was born and raised in Mount Bayou, Mississippi, and his whole lineage is from that. So it's just crazy you brought it up and everything because, You might wow. be from close by then. Also from there is Shonda Rhimes. So I keep telling people that she's my cousin, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. But she, she does. She, have, she has a really interesting story that we don't, I think one, the, the part that I didn't realize, um, and even with my own mom, like they lived on the plantation. Like my my grandmother moved from the plantation in 1981. So that's something people love to say. Oh, slavery was so long ago. No, people were still living on plantations. Mm-hmm. Like our generation of kids, some of them were born on plantations, and yeah. that's something that we don't talk about. But um, Fannie Lou Hamer was like. It, they weren't allowed to leave the plantation without getting permission from the um, from the plantation owner, and so it, just to think about that, it's like we we like to say, oh, well, slavery was over, you know, and but people couldn't leave; they couldn't leave the property without having this white slave owner's permission. Um, and the way that exactly, and the way that sh- sharecropping worked, it was like you were indebted for life really it was uh, like, also how there were still like when t- slaves were free 
some masters didn't free their slaves yep. and the word didn't get out to deep south until later on that yeah. they found out the people weren't willing letting them free and just to go off what you said people thinking that was such a long time ago that goes off um like pictures of martin luther king how you only see them in black and white but those pictures were taken in color those there, there are pictures and from color during that time but it's what they put in the history books to make it seem like it was such so, a long so time ago. So long ago, ago. yeah. And it's crazy how they, it's all about that, the misconception and, what is, and it's so deeper than people really believe. Mm -hmm. Going back to what you previously mentioned, I wanted to get on was how you um, talked about the media. The media, it, it, whoever controls the distribution of information has the true power. If there's someone top in the media who doesn't want something out to get out about them, of course they're not going to let their company put yeah. out bad things about them. Yeah. You just got to put two and two together, and the more m more money and power a person has, the more things they get into. Yeah. And, oh. and when you can control public perception, you can control the public. Yes. Um, we live in a society where we we like to rely on the newspaper and the news and think that we're going to get accurate information, but it's not always accurate. I mean, we have, um, th they get whatever information they get and do they have time to do any research on it? Do they take any effort to research on it? What about that person's personal bias and how they perceive the information? Mm -hmm. Like none of that is factored in. We just figure, oh, this is what was reported on the news. And so that's it. And then we move on to the next thing. Like we just nice. talked about forced hysterectomies of women in it, it, i mean I, I i i would say that they are the, they are very similar to concentration camps and that was just a blip we just moved yeah. on from it and it's like okay we have children who are in cages at the border we have yeah. forced sterilization and then but we talk about nazi germany like it was just this you know thing that happened that was the worst thing that we could ever think of but they got the idea from america and the things yeah. that they the chemicals that they used in the gas chamber were being used in america on people from texas people from mexico and texas oh wow and we just that's that's not discussed at all we don't talk oh, about wow. our own ills and our own discrimination and racism we only we can only have a full discussion if it's someone else who we're pointing the finger at which stops us from addressing racism Wow, you hit it right on the nail right there. Um, so I ask you this next question. Um, so, oh, actually, it's a quote I have for you. Um, so the quote is: "Those of us who stand outside the circle of this society's definition of acceptable women, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of differences, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill." For the master's tool would not dismantle the master's house. They will never allow us to bring genuine change. Um, I believe it's by Audre Lorde. Um, I'll ask you, what does this quote mean to you as you hear it? I think it factors into kind of the respectability politics that we mm -hmm. see. Like, um, people think that you have to go about things in a nice way in order to effectuate change. And it's like, if, if being nice would create change, then why hasn't it happened already? If if us being patient would stop racism, why hasn't why hasn't it happened? How how much patience and kindness and sweetness do we need? We need we have to understand that it's not about being nice or following these certain set of rules that the oppressors have set out to tell you how you know how you go about creating change. 
if I want to oppress you, I'm obviously not going to tell you how to stop me from oppressing you. I might give and you a so, little trick so you can play around, around a little circle real quick and make you think that you're doing exactly. something. Exactly. Let me put you on you. a committee. You can't. Why don't we study it? You know, we look at we look throughout the years and years and years of studies of things that we have studied in this society. And I think that the thing that we studied most um is that studying it doesn't work it's a way to keep people busy it's a way to kind of distract people from the actual issues you don't have to study how to treat everybody the same you don't have to study how to stop um discriminating against people that that's not something that you have to study all you have to do is treat people the way that you want to be treated and then you got people who ask the question well if you want to be treated tell me how i should treat you then. exactly because i mean it's like well the same way you you treat everyone else in the way you want to be treated yeah. and we think about like we we frame the protest that we've been seeing since the murder of george floyd it's like well i went to a peaceful protest and it's like the chant is no justice no peace like it's a protest by its very nature is not peaceful but that is the narrative that goes out into the mm -hmm. media that if you want to protest you have it has to be a peaceful protest or else it's a bad protest and it's like well that's not the point of protest, and you don't get to tell people how to oppose their own uh, oppression. You know what's not peaceful? Stealing people and land and natural resources. Stealing lives. That's not peaceful <laughs> at all. I mean, it's like, seriously? Peaceful, gonna... Of course they want a peaceful protest. They don't want to lose money. We're murdering people daily in other countries, <laughs> and, we, and we want to talk about peaceful protests. Like, are you, are you kidding right now? <laughs> we spend so much money on on our military and, and wars, mm -hmm. but we talk about how if you want to create change, you have to do it peacefully. Then why aren't we doing it peacefully? Why aren't we going and, and, and kindly sitting down with people and seeing if we can, you know, be patient and meet them and, and you know, give them time to realize that they should treat everyone the, the way that, that they feel that they should be treated. We don't even treat our own citizens that way. Of course, we're not going to treat other people. So, um, my last question for you to, for today. Uh, I'll ask, in a society where women of all color around the world are constantly dealing with different forms and aspects of the discrimination, what can we do as a male-oriented society to start the process of change that could one day eliminate these issues? I think... Uh, uh a great step for men is to call it out when we see sex when, when men see sexism and mm -hmm. oppression um i think a lot of times things happen and people don't want to have uncomfortable conversations mm -hmm. but you just have to if i mean I, I know a lot of women who have been uh sexually assaulted or subjected to sexual harassment but um, n none of the men say that they know people who have done the the harassing and, and assaulting and it's like well we have to be aware of our surroundings and, and call stuff out when we see it and, and make sure that we are taking steps to ensure that there is um, equity around us. Because I think we look at it and we see that it's a huge problem, but every individual has the power to make a change. And um, even even if your your change is just affecting one person, that's still one change that has that can serve to change the trajectory of someone's life yes yes well 
once again, I'd like to thank you, Latrice, for coming in today and joining me for the podcast and actually having this discussion with me. Um, it truly means a lot. And with these continuous conversations, we are taking the small steps to combat ignorance and hate with positivity and education. Um, we are also beginning the development of conscious thinking through diversity and education that can one day help us understand the philosophy behind people's racial bias with thinking. I would like to thank everyone who made this possible with a special thanks to St. Ambrose 88.5 106.1 FM KALA radio station, the St. Ambrose Coke John Foundation, and St. Ambrose Cabinet and Administration. I would like to give one more special shout out to St. Ambrose Black Student Union, whose meetings are held on Wednesdays at 7.15 in the Rogowski Ballroom number seven. Room number seven. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you continue to stay safe and healthy, and we shall see you next time. Have a blessed day.